So Bill, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, anytime. And thank you. You know, I can't thank you enough for saying yes. So <laughs> I just thought we'd dive right in and partially because I'm always really curious about books and kind of where they start. And I love talking to authors about the things behind the book and the, the things that we don't necessarily get to, to see the inner workings and imagination. And so I just thought I'd ask, what led to you writing A Dark Night in Aurora inside James Holmes and the Colorado mass shootings? Well, in, in my real life, other than my literary life, I'm a forensic psychiatrist. I work with criminal matters and civil matters, and I was asked by the judge in the case to become involved as the judge's expert. After spending over a year working with the case and interviewing and reviewing lots and lots of records, some 85,000 pages of records, in fact, um, the case came to an end, and a couple of years later, I decided to write a book about it. It was a tough decision because people like me often don't write about things. It may or may not be ethical. We want to be very careful, but I enjoy writing. I've written a lot of other books and it just kind of fell into place. And can I ask, what is that like? Like that, um, because I do, I always wonder about like whose story it is. And I feel like I'm, as a reader, I'm really grateful that you did because I know there are going to be things in it that I wouldn't otherwise have access to. There's information that, you know, from interviews that you've done and talks, and then also your expert knowledge that I don't know. And you kind of filtering that for, uh, for readers who don't understand things in the same ways or, you know, get to see patterns in the same way. So I guess I'm really curious about that decision because it's not just you you know, putting yourself through that and, and doing all that work for the case, which I think is that one thing. But then you saying, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to give this to readers as well, which feels like a gift like in itself. What led you to decide that, you know what, yeah, this is something that readers need to know? That's a fine, fine question. I've worked with a number of mass shooting cases and large mass shooting cases. And in this one, it's one of the ones that I was so immersed in that it seemed important to share not only what I saw and learned, but what I felt about it. I wrote it in part for readers to learn more. There's a tremendous amount of disinformation and misinformation around about mass shooters. In a way, I kind of wrote it for the victims. Uh, I've been accused very occasionally about uh, taking advantage of a situation in which people were killed and many people were injured, et cetera. In fact, I've heard from many of the victims uh, that the book has given them some resolution and has helped them in some way. And I appreciate that feedback uh, very much. I wrote it in part because as I get older, I want a little legacy. Lots of folks want a little legacy. And it seemed important to get this out not just to the profession, to the psychiatry profession or the forensic psychiatry profession, but to general readers. And I hope we've succeeded with that. Oh, wonderful. And what a wonderful aim for something to give to the victims as well. With that in mind, could we have a reading, please? Well, sure. Thank you. Let me start out with early in the book, a matter of fact, chapter one, about James Holmes. James Holmes was the person who committed this horrendous mass killing but he didn't start out to be a killer. James Egan Holmes came into this world December 13, 1987. 
in Scripps Memorial Hospital, La Jolla, California. His mother had a briefly complicated labor in a cesarean section, but there was nothing particularly special about his birth. Arlene and Robert were excited to see their first child, the first grandchild in either of their families. They named him after a paternal uncle and added Arlene's family name. His birth announcement, which in a bizarre twist became a piece of evidence in his later fight against receiving the death penalty, says he weighed seven pounds, eight ounces. There's a lovely photo of him resting on Robert's chest. Every baby is cute. Every baby is sweet. Every baby brings its parents and the world a promise for the future. For the next decade, this baby was a normal little boy named Jimmy. Even as a reader, I'm thinking, my gosh, like, so that's up until he was 10. And already I'm going, oh my goodness. And what happened next? You know, like what happened at 11 that made him no longer that, that kid? Wow. So can I ask what sort of research does go into for the case itself? And then also the writing of the book. The case itself demanded as, as most of them do a great deal of research. When one is retained by the judge and not by a lawyer for either side, it's a luxury. Uh, One has access to both sides' information, to the police information, investigations, background, things like that. So one day, a Federal Express truck arrived at my office with some 85,000 pages of material from Aurora, Colorado. In addition to that, there were CDs and DVDs of other interviews, the interrogations, things like that, Uh, hundreds, probably thousands of photographs. And over the next year, literally, I went through those as carefully as I could, made several visits to Colorado, spent 23 hours over nine interviews of James Holmes, interviewed his parents, of course, his sister, his friends, his professors, his childhood friends. It was a significant undertaking. And uh, sometimes when I lecture about this, I show a picture of all the files that are now in my closet. The book itself made me go back over some of those things and over my reports to the court and my testimony in court, as well as the reports and testimony of of other people as well. Uh, There certainly were other professionals involved uh, in the case in addition to myself. The book required another year or so of re-immersion in the case, and in some ways, a deeper immersion, because I was once again trying to get everything right to be sure that I didn't misspeak or or miswrite something, also to be sure that things were perfectly legal and above board. As a matter of fact, at some point, I began to get very depressed, very anxious, and I, I thought I was mentally ill. And my wife came in and said to me, you do know that this is the karma from the book. She was absolutely right. I took a vacation, a week without the book, without writing about it, and everything went back to normal. But folks who do this kind of thing, many kinds of professionals, as well as I'm sure some writers, uh, there's a certain trauma to some of the things we write about and a certain karma if we immerse ourselves too much. Didn't mean to go so far afield. 
but thanks yeah, for asking. That, that's wonderful because I have, I don't think I've thought of it as in terms of karma. I've thought of it in terms of kind of like that duty of care to yourself when you are immersing yourself in, especially a, um, a real life tragedy, something that you are, you know, processing during it or like you, it just seems one, like an incredible responsibility, bef even before doing it as a book, so doing it as a case, like accessing that and reading it objectively and combing it for, you know, information and insight and all of those things seems like an incredible um, task to do and yeah. mentally and emotionally and psychologically, like all those ways draining. The objectivity is, is a really important thing that you bring up and, and thank you for thinking of that. There are a couple of other books that have been written about this case and many books written about other cases, some of which I've been involved in and some not. Um, I tried very hard, as, as people in my profession do, to be as objective as possible for the court and for the jury, and then tried very hard to be as objective as possible for the book. For example, there are people out there, trolls on the internet and various social media, who uh, badmouth the parents or badmouth something else, badmouth mental health, badmouth the cops. The fact is, no one deserves that badmouthing. The book itself is partially dedicated to Arlene and Robert Holmes, uh, which, and I'll just read from the, from the dedication, if I may, real quickly, and to Holmes' parents, Arlene and Robert, who did nothing wrong. They endured a great deal of, of uh, troll hatred online and it's very unfortunate i can imagine it's um people do jump to conclusions and it seems that the easiest uh person to attack in situations like this are the parents and i think that as society i'm really glad that you did um, acknowledge that they had done nothing wrong because i would imagine that that guilt follows them even when it's not their fault or even if they've done everything they could possibly do guilt seems to be one of those things that you know we can manifest guilt about any certain, any of number course, of things. Of course. And his home life was, there were no problems with his home life, unlike some other people who have done similar things. But thank you for bringing that up. No, my pleasure. Thank you for answering it. Could we have another reading, please? Sure. Let me go to just before the shootings took place and to remind folks who may not remember that far back, uh, this was a situation in which James Holmes planned and went to a movie theater for a midnight showing of a movie, uh, then killed 12 people, wounded 58, frightened the whole 400 in the theater on the case of very few, uh, very few minutes, in the course of a very few minutes. Holmes drove carefully to the theater. He didn't speed. He stopped at all the lights, even though traffic was light on a Thursday just before midnight. Quote, I was concentrating on getting to the theater without getting pulled over, unquote. He was on his way to kill as many people as he could. I asked whether or not if an elderly woman had walked into his path, he would have swerved. He said he would have avoided her because it would have interfered with the mission. Quote, plus, that's kind of personal hitting a little old lady with your car, unquote. When Holmes got to the Century 16, he parked his Hyundai Tiburon close to the rear exit for Auditorium 9. He got out of his car and walked around the building to the theater entrance. 
He didn't stand out much. He'd left all of his ballistic clothing in the car. He wore what Holmes usually wore, informal pants and a dark T-shirt with a long-sleeved open shirt on top. His orange hair was covered by a dark knit cap. He walked in a little after midnight. The foyer was crowded. Most of the people were there for the midnight premiere of The Dark Knight Rises. So was he. He went up to a service kiosk, entered the transaction code from his iPhone, and got a paper ticket. It was for Auditorium 8. He hadn't been able to get one for Auditorium 9. That didn't matter much. No one noticed his ticket as he walked back to the concession area and then to Auditorium 9. The previews had started. The theater was dark. Holmes went to the very front of the full auditorium, immediately took out his cell phone, and feigned a call. Witnesses said he looked like someone who'd gotten a call and was politely taking it outside to avoid bothering anyone. One saw him prop the exit door open with his foot. He looked back at the auditorium as he left and saw a sea of faces lit by the light from the screen. Holmes left the theater through an exit on the right of the screen. He carefully placed a tablecloth clip, a piece of plastic designed to secure a picnic tablecloth, on the edge of the door to keep it from closing completely. He had measured earlier to be sure the clip would fit. He had to be able to get back in and complete the mission. Holmes got into his car and began the laborious process of putting on all the body armor in that cramped space. He managed. He had preloaded all his weapons and gotten everything ready before leaving the apartment. The car windows were heavily tinted. No one could see inside. Early in the suiting up process, as Holmes put earbuds into his ears, he heard a noise outside the car. It was a theater employee putting trash into a nearby dumpster. He froze. The interruption was a surprise, but not a serious impediment to the mission. He had a pistol in the passenger door of his car for just such eventualities, and he was fully prepared to shoot if he was discovered. I asked if his heart was racing, his adrenaline pumping. How did he feel when he realized someone was just a few feet away? Holmes said simply, quote, calm and collected, unquote. The man dumped the trash and went back inside, none the wiser. He didn't die that night. On one hand, I'm so surprised that he agrees to interviews and he um, speaks so candidly about what, you know, what he's done. And I don't know what I expect otherwise, but I think it's just, I guess I'm just surprised. My experience with folks like this, including James Holmes, is that they cooperate very nicely with interviews. In Holmes's case, through his lawyer's, he had entered an insanity defense. That was really his only defense to try to avoid the death penalty. Um, so that the interviews and evaluations by lots of people were court ordered, but he was quite willing to talk. Uh, there are also some informal ways to get people to talk a little more freely and things like that. The many hours, as I say, over 22, 23 hours I spent with them uh, were interesting they were as conversational as he could be, although he is a bit mentally disturbed. And so it wasn't like too normal a, a conversation. Um, 
but he was quite willing to talk. And over time, over the several weeks of those interviews, um, his story, his descriptions hung together rather well. Um, I don't know that he was always telling me the, the truth every single time. I can't read his mind. But they were consistent with other evidence, other interviews, uh, photographs, witness statements, and things like that. Um, what is something that you learned in your research that surprised you? I was surprised that his motivation, while it was a bit bizarre, was not what I would call, what a psychiatrist would call, a psychotic motivation. Um, some of the other psychiatrists and psychologists who saw him believed that it was psychotic, and I believe he was quite emotionally disturbed. Uh, but I was a little surprised uh, that he was a very competent young man in most other respects. He wasn't very competent with regard to relationships with others. He had kind of a, a failed uh, girlfriend relationship. His grades were starting to get bad, but he was exceedingly bright in graduate school. Um, he was in a neuroscience graduate program, arguably the, the brightest person in that program. So there wasn't a big psychiatric or, or psychotic, if you will, trigger that I found. And that's one of the reasons that my testimony suggested to the jury that he should not be found not guilty by reason of insanity, because although he was quite mentally ill, he was very aware of what he was doing, was aware that it was criminal, was aware that people wouldn't want to be killed, for example. And he talked fairly eloquently about that in our various interviews. Wow. Could we have one final reading, please? One final reading. At the end of the trial, and after what's called the punishment phase of the trial, he had been found guilty. And now the jury uh, would determine whether or not he was to receive the death penalty. In Colorado, in most states, a judge decides how long one spends in prison, but only a jury can decide the death penalty. Hmm. So as the jury came back after the punishment phase, the next day, Friday, August 7, 2015, the foreperson signaled the judge that the jury had reached a verdict. Before the jurors returned to the courtroom, the judge once again cautioned victims and other spectators about outbursts. The jury filed in and sat down. Samur, that's Judge Samur, an excellent judge, by the way. Samur read their verdicts, identical except for the victims' names, for each first-degree murder charge. We, the jury, do not have a unanimous final verdict on this count, and we, the jury, understand that as a result, the court will impose a sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. At the first indication that Holmes would not be put to death, his mother, Arlene, sobbed with relief and slumped into her husband Robert's shoulder. He braced her gently. The judge continued to read. Some spectators, mostly victims and their families, left to release their feelings outside. Their cries could be heard through the courtroom doors. James Holmes would live because one juror refused to assess the ultimate penalty. 
Two others had serious doubts because of his mental illness. It was later learned. But the jury stopped deliberating because the additional juror decisions in light of at least one vote against execution would be moot. The jury was dismissed with thanks and high praise for their extraordinary work and endurance. Formal sentencing was scheduled for a final hearing that would begin on August 24. At the final sentencing hearing, Holmes was back in an orange jail jumpsuit and shackles. He would sit through two days of additional victim impact statements made to the judge rather than addressed directly to him, Holmes, before the sentences were read. Over a hundred people, some in wheelchairs, some still grieving the deaths of loved ones, some living with special trauma of being a first responder to the massacre, many having trouble getting their words out and all articulate in their own ways, remembered for the court that terrible night in 2012 and its lasting physical and emotional devastation. With no jury to address, they spoke to Judge Samur from a lectern in front of the bench. A few weren't satisfied that Holmes wouldn't be put to death. One in particular called the upcoming life sentences unjust. Judge Samur took exception to that and spent considerable time responding to her comments. Justice means giving the facts to a jury and accepting their decisions, he said. The jury did its job. Quote, if it was a popularity contest, then you could never have justice, unquote. Arlene Holmes, deeply suffering victim in her own right, was the last to take the podium. She spoke for her family, saying that Holmes does feel remorse, but can't express it well because of his illness. She expressed her family's deep sorrow for all the victims. Quote, we cannot feel the depths of your pain. We can only listen to everything you have expressed, and we pray for you, unquote. At last, on August 26, 2015, 27-year-old Holmes stood impassively beside public defender King to hear his fate, his wrists handcuffed to a chain around his waist. Some media reports said his lack of expression was caused by his medication, but that's unlikely. He just wasn't emotional. The gist of the outcome was a foregone conclusion. James Holmes was sentenced to 12 consecutive life sentences without possibility of parole and an additional total of 3,318 years in prison for 141 lesser included offenses. It was the longest sentence in U.S. history. When he had finished reading the sentences, Judge Samore looked at Holmes with a scorn uncharacteristic of the respect he had shown the defendant during the trial. He contrasted Holmes' unfeeling carnage with the compassion of the juror who voted against the death penalty. Quote, the defendant does not deserve any sympathy, unquote, he said, never using Holmes's name. Quote, and for that reason, the court imposes the maximum sentence it can impose under the law. Samur's final words as he closed the proceedings were, Sheriff, get the defendant out of my courtroom, please. The gallery erupted in applause, then cheers. One woman shouted, loser, 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 as deputies escorted Holmes from the courtroom. The door closed behind him for the last time, and Judge Samur, 
an arbiter of justice under the most trying of circumstances, stepped down from his bench. Wow. What a powerful, just a powerful thing to even witness. And I can't even imagine what everyone felt like in, you know, in that moment. But again, thank you for, I think, objectively painting that picture so that those of us who don't experience that and, and some of us who like, you know, I'm sure we're all hoping that we never do. But um, so thank you for being that lens, you know, to give that to us, to bring that to us. It's really quite powerful. I'm still thinking about like, my gosh, just like, my gosh. And I, I do want to ask, and I, um, th- th- though it does bring me over my three questions, when you think about shootings in the U.S., and is there anything that you've learned in your, I guess, in through your years of research and your expertise that can help us either recognize, are there any warning signs that we're missing? Or is there anything that we should be doing that we're not doing so that we can save more lives? That's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, everyone has an opinion about that. I have an opinion. My opinion, I believe, is based on work with a number of relatively similar cases. None is actually very similar, but they're all somewhat similar as well as working with colleagues a lot, knowing law enforcement very well, knowing psychiatry pretty well. The two things that come to mind that will help, in my view, are good law enforcement and something called target hardening. That is making it harder for people to get the opportunity to kill large numbers of people. You'll notice I didn't mention mental health. And I say in the book, and I've said to, I don't know how many interviewers over the last few years, when danger is an issue, call a cop, not a shrink. Hmm. It is lovely that the state of Colorado, after this trial, uh, authorized an additional, I think, $20 million for psychiatric and mental health crisis services in Colorado. That's a lot for one state. That, in my view, will not and has not prevented any major mass shootings. By the way, law enforcement in the U.S. defines mass shooting uh, as something like two or more victims in the same event. We're talking about much larger mass shootings here, as as you know. Increased mental health funding, uh, increased mental health awareness are really good things. They will help hundreds of thousands or millions of people And I want that to happen. They're not going to, in my view, prevent mass killings. Psychiatrists and psychologists can't read minds. In every instance that I can think of right now, including the Holmes case, um, if psychiatrists or psychologists have seen the person, they have not seen enough to reasonably come to a conclusion that this person should be locked up or hospitalized or stopped. In the case of Holmes, he saw a social worker and two psychiatrists prior to these events. It is not the social worker or the psychiatrist's fault. I I know one of them pretty well. I've read their reports. I've seen their testimony. It's just not their fault. Cases against them, victims who sue them, things like that, those cases are routinely uh, unsuccessful in terms of 
proving malpractice or something like that. Law enforcement, good law enforcement is really important. Hardening the target, you may know that in Israel, for example, it is very difficult to get inside a school. The doors are locked. There are people monitoring the doors, et cetera, et cetera. And there has not been a school shooting in Israel ever that I know of, except for one situation decades ago, which was a terrorist act, not a single, not a single shooter. Um, does that mean we should do the same in the U.S.? in every single community? I don't know. Fortunately, I don't have to make those decisions. But to look for the answers in mental health is is a mistake. Almost all of these people who are perpetrators are found guilty of crimes. They know what they're doing, even though, as I think we all would, would assume, they have serious mental problems. That doesn't make them not responsible for their acts. Mm. Um, the blaming of police or psychiatry or something else, I think, is just that. It's a, it's a way to resolve our feelings or society's feelings. It often doesn't come to answers. When I hear on the news that, that they're searching for answers in Uvalde, Texas, or, or some other place, I almost have decided that the phrase searching for answers really means searching for somebody to blame when we just don't know. And it's very painful not to know. Fortunately, these things are still rare. They really are rare, even though one occurred a couple of hundred miles from where I'm sitting right now. They're quite rare. And they don't just occur in the U.S., They don't just occur in states where firearms are easily available. They don't just occur in countries where firearms are easily available. Firearms are a common weapon, but we also see all kinds of other instruments of of devastation, bombs, poisons, uh, gas, fire, uh, knives, all kinds of things. As, As you know, in recent days, recently, as we're recording this, It's happened in England, it's happened in Norway, it's happened in several other countries. It irritates me a bit uh, at the simplicity when people say, oh, that's largely a U.S. phenomenon, or, oh, that's largely related to, quote, gun control. I think there are logical things to do with firearms, uh, but in my view, um, that's not the answer to preventing large mass killings. Wow, Bill, thank you so much. Before you go, can you please let us know where can we find the book? Well, thank you. A Dark Night in Aurora is pretty much available everywhere. Amazon's got it. Barnes & Noble has it in the in the UK. Whatever the equivalents are in the UK, uh, it, it should be easy to get. Uh, I appreciate your asking. It's paperback. It's audiobook. It's MP3. Uh, there are lots of ways to get it. And it is unfortunate that it illustrates what it illustrates. Uh, I appreciate the readers, of course. I promise you the novel I've just finished does not have anything to do with mass killing. Thank you. And we look forward to hearing more about your novel and maybe you'll be a guest uh, on the show then as well. So for today, thank you so much for joining us and for reading and sharing your insights. You've been very kind. And I thank you, Yvonne, for giving me the opportunity to talk with you. 
Oh, it's my pleasure.